I said it um, the first hour, and I'll say it again. I feel like we can pray and go home. It was beautiful. Thank you, ladies. Thanks, David, for your ministry to us. And uh, I'd be tempted to do that if it wasn't for um, the fact that I, I have um, a burden on my heart. Um, a message that uh, I feel like the Lord is calling me to bring this morning. So I invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have them, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18. <clears throat> as, uh, as long as there has been religion, um, there has been the sin of spiritual pride and self-righteousness. This is a sin that, um, that predates mankind. Prophet Ezekiel, chapter 28 of his prophecies in verse 17, as he is addressing the king of Tyre, he, he goes beyond the king and speaks of the spiritual power that is uh, influencing that king, none other than Satan himself, describes Satan as um, a being who became infatuated with his own beauty and so desired to exalt himself in his heart. Prophet Isaiah in chapter 14 does the same thing in speaking of the the king of Babylon, but beyond that, the power that was influencing that king talks about um, Satan as one who vowed to exalt himself above the Most High, and so to be like God in It was Paul who told his protege, Timothy, who warned him that when um, choosing men for spiritual leadership in the church, to be careful not to put young converts, young believers, into positions of spiritual authority because they may become conceited and fall under the condemnation of the devil. It's 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. So pride was at the heart of the original sin of Satan. And it's the undertone of the very first temptation that he used to lure the first man and the first woman to rebel against God. It was Satan who told the woman in Genesis 3 verse 5, you shall be like God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The great irony is that Adam and Eve were far more like God before they rebelled than they ever were after, but the ruse worked. Man was tempted towards the sin ever since. It could be said that pride and self-righteousness are the default spiritual disposition of man. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? We always tend to think of ourselves as more highly than we ought to think. And that's something that is true, not just in the world in general, but it's true in the church. It was, it was Paul who noted that... Um, in chapter 12 of Romans, in verse 3, he warned the believers in light of the gospel and the mercies of God not to think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think, but to think of yourself with sober judgment. 
We tend to think more highly than we, of ourselves than we ought to think, and Satan knows this. And since he is the God of this world, he has so arranged this world to be a system that feeds into human pride. It was the Apostle John in his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 16, that talks about all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. And since um, pride is satanic and false religion is satanic and demonic in origin, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20 that what the pagans offer to idols, they actually offer to demons who energize and organize that idolatry. False religion is organized and energized by demons. And so since both come from Satan... It's only to be expected that pride and self-righteousness are in some form at the heart of every false religion. Every form of religion outside of the Christian faith utilizes pride, utilizes human pride in order to deceive man into believing that he can have some part in his salvation, that he can cooperate with God and so bring himself closer to God and closer to heaven. It convinces this person, I'd say quite easily, that either there is nothing wrong with him, which is the prevailing issue at stake in our culture today, that there is nothing wrong with man. Man is good, not evil. But if somebody should think that he is evil, pride also convinces this person that he can somehow do something about it, to fix his problem. Both of these are completely satanic deceptions. Man can't do enough to please God because man can't be good enough to please God. But he's convinced he can because he has a completely misunderstood reality of of how evil he really is And how holy and righteous God is and how high and unattainable the bar of salvation is. How high is this bar? Leviticus 19 verse 2 says, You must be, say it, holy as I am holy. James 2 verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point becomes guilty of it all. Of course, Jesus sums it all up, Matthew 5, 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection is the standard. Perfection is the standard. And it's because God himself is the standard. He defines what righteousness is. He defines what holiness is. And anything that falls below that standard, below that line, meets his just wrath. So what is man to do? He is stuck in a predicament, unable to attain the level of righteousness needed to enter into God's kingdom, only with a target on his back of holy, righteous wrath. What is man to do? That's exactly the question that is at the center of this text that's before us. 
The question is, who is fit for the kingdom of God? And that has been a question that is basically transitioning at this point in Luke's gospel. Luke has been talking about the kingdom ever since in chapter 17, verse 20. A Pharisee asked him when the kingdom was going to come, and he began to talk about the nature of this kingdom as something other than what was to be expected. He then, in the beginning of chapter 18, told a parable to his disciples to encourage them to keep praying, pray for the coming of the Son of Man, don't give up, don't lose heart, keep praying even when things don't look like they're going well. And then after that, he begins to talk about fitness for the kingdom, who belongs in the kingdom, who gets in. Verse 15 to 17, it's the one who has childlike faith. He is fit for the kingdom. Verse 18, you have the very well familiar passage of the rich young ruler, man who is uh, entrenched in this world, entrenched in the possessions of this world, and is mourning the fact that what is required of him to enter that kingdom is to give up his possessions. It's very difficult. Impossible, really, Jesus says, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that left his disciples scratching their head. Well, then who can be saved? Jesus, of course, says with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. But Luke begins this focus on fitness for the kingdom with the passage that we have before us in verse 9. And it's a fitting introduction because it really clearly delineates who is and who is not fit for God's kingdom. And even though this is a parable like the one that's right before it that has to do with prayer and the kingdom, and, but, but it really isn't about prayer. Prayer is just the occasion. What Jesus is after is to focus on the heart, and the prayer is just a way to get at a person's heart. So with that in mind, let's read this passage and we'll take a look at some of the details of it. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. As we begin to look at this text, we have to note first in verse 9 the audience to which Jesus is addressing this parable. This is something that Jesus did often. He would fashion a tale, fashion a story, and he would be addressing a certain target audience that was listening to him amongst the crowd. And in this case, in verse 9, 
his target audience is the some. He says he also told this parable to some. The some among the many. And this some among, <clears throat> among the many are marked by two distinct characteristics. They are those who were trusting in themselves, that they were righteous, trusting, pytho, to be persuaded, to be, to be sure, to be confident in something. And so based on that confidence, based on that assurance, to then rely on that thing. They were relying on themselves that they were righteous. They had confidence in their own righteousness, their behavior, was sufficient grounds for their standing before God and it was sufficient evidence that they were righteous people. And then because of their their own self-standing, they had a second characteristic. They treated others with contempt. Literally, others is literally the rest. There were the, the sum and then there were the rest. These they treated with contempt, with disdain. And it was a result of their self-righteousness. Their self-righteousness gave them a smugness, gave them this confidence in themselves, and then they used that to look at other people and evaluate their standing based on who they were and then look contemptuously at them and disdain them because they didn't meet their standard. Unless you think that this is just a target to a very specific group, this is actually a very broad target. Everyone is in potential danger of this. Everyone in this room is not exempt from beginning to trust in your own righteousness to beginning to elevate yourself in your own mind and begin to look at others with contempt. I read to you earlier Romans Chapter 12, verse 3, but I'll I'll read the whole text for you just to remind you. This is Paul to Christians saying, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. This is something we can all fit into, folks. This is addressing all of us. And so this is a text that not only clarifies the the character of the person fit for the kingdom, but it also warns those who are citizens of that kingdom that spiritual pride, spiritual exaltation, self-righteousness have no place among God's people. That kind of sin needs to be rooted out and fast. So this really steps on all of our toes, gets into our kitchens, demands that we listen. And... um, As we look at verse 10, we begin to see the setting that Jesus is setting up. He's, we've, uh, we've seen who he's talking to his audience, but he, the setting is important as well. And one thing to understand as you look at parables is to understand that Jesus told these stories within the, the context of a, of a first century Near East context. He spoke about things of life. He spoke about things that people would have understood everyday kind of occurrences and half the work of, of unpacking these kind of stories and parables is to, to, to understand the, the elements, the cultural elements, the unspoken connotations and associations that people had in their minds that were just built into the culture. So if we can get there, 
then I think we can grasp at least some of the impact that a story like this had to the people that he was speaking to, particularly his target audience. And so the setting is this. He tells a parable about two men. Two men. There are only two men because the people who are talking to, there's only two groups. There are the some and the others. And so he's already setting up a scenario where he's inviting his listeners to identify with one or the other. If you are the some, you will find yourself in one of these characters. If you are the other, you will find yourself in one of these characters. But look at the location. It says two men went into the temple. The temple. The most sacred place in Judaism. It's the center of Israelite life, the center of cultic activity and the sacrificial system, the political system, economics, all happened at the temple. Worship and, and uh, prayer happened there. But, but more than that, the temple was a place that was designed in order to make distinctions, to organize all of life according to the various... Um, courtyard systems that the temple had. And so as you went into the temple, you were immediately organized by Jew and Gentile. And then again, you were organized by men and women. And then again, you were organized by priest and laity. And then again, you were organized by clean and unclean. Everything falls into place within the temple. One uh, writer, Joel Green, said the, the temple was the divinely legitimated hub that mirrors as well as communicates and sustains the boundaries of social relations and experiences of kinship among Jewish people. And so the mere mention that these two people were going into the temple immediately brings to mind all of those systems of thought and organizing in the mind of a Jew. It's the perfect location for this parable because it draws on all these subconscious, unspoken, cultural, and religious connotations. Now, what were these men going to do? What was their purpose? They were going to pray. A common activity at that time, a common activity at the temple. The temple, after all, in Isaiah 56, 7, is called a house of prayer. So they're going to the temple to pray. Public prayers were um, offered after the morning and the evening services, which would be 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. respectively. And so probably at the afternoon prayer is the setting for this particular parable. These two men are going to the temple to pray. And really, that's not the scandalous part. That's not the shocking part of the story. The shocking part is when Jesus identifies who these two people are. Their identity is, is what will bring a kind of gasp to the listeners. Two men went into a temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Jesus has intentionally selected the two most incongruous, polar opposite individuals for the story. You could not find people who were more opposed to each other in ancient Israelite society. 
And he is purposefully playing off all of those connotations, all of those religious associations that your average Jew would have as you hear just those two words. I don't even think that we have a parallel in our culture that could bring up the gut reaction if I were to just say a word and it brings to mind everything about this particular kind of person. I can't think of, uh, of a parallel. But these two men are supposed to draw his listeners in to identify either with one or the other. The first is Pharisee. Not much is known about where Pharisees originated. Their origins are kind of cloaked um, in historical, um, I don't know, milieu, and it's hard to hard to really see where they came from, but their name most likely comes from an Aramaic term that means separated ones or holy ones. And probably their origins came out of the Maccabean Revolt. You remember Alexander the Great when he conquered Persia and then he began to go and conquer the then known world. He had it as his mission to spread Greek culture throughout the empire and uh, this process of Greek culture was called Hellenization. Hellenism. And uh, some segments of Judaism embraced Hellenistic culture, but there were those who disdained it, who were strongly opposed to it and saw it as an imminent threat to Jewish culture and particularly Jewish religion. And so uh, after the split of the empire into the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, the Jews ended up revolting against, um, against the powers of be known as the Maccabean Revolt, and it was probably out of this time frame that the Pharisees emerged as those who saw Hellenism as a threat and were trying to protect and preserve the Jewish traditions that were being handed down from being Hellenized. They were not a political uh, party per se, as much as they were a religious group, a religious sect that was devoted to scrupulous maintaining of the Mosaic law and, and particularly the traditions that were handed down from generation to generation orally. There were about 6,000 Pharisees that were strewn throughout the land of Palestine during the time of Jesus. Most of them were laymen, very few of them were actually priests. But Josephus, the ancient um, Jewish historian, says that they were extremely influential among the common people. People listened to them. People looked up to them. They viewed them as what it meant to be a pious, religious, devout Jew. And, of course, they viewed themselves that way as well. Viewed themselves as the authorized successors of the law. Jesus said that they sat in the seat of Moses, according to Matthew 23, 2. They were guardians of of law-keeping, definers of what it meant to be pious, religious, and devout. And their main motivation was the observance of the rabbinic traditions and the interpretations of the law that had been passed down from the fathers in which they saw as just as authoritative as the very law itself. And they even claimed that they could trace the oral law 
from Moses to Joshua and all the way to the current scribes and rabbis that the Pharisees relied upon. Josephus describes them as a class of Jews who considered themselves the godliest of the nation, the most rigorous followers of the law, and for that reason they separated themselves with the commoner, what they called the Amharits, the people of the land. They maintained strict separation so as not to defile themselves and break their traditions. I tell you, Jesus could not have picked a more fitting individual to feature the sum in this parable. The Pharisee represents everything religious, everything pious, everything devout about spiritual, uh, the, uh, the Jewish spiritual religion. His, his target audience would have heard this guy's name, this guy's title, and immediately latch onto him and say, this is our guy. Now that is completely opposed to the other guy. He is a tax collector. And tax collectors were the most pitiful, disdainful individuals in Israel. Rome collected taxes about, uh, from land and poll taxes directly from the people, but then they, what it had to do with import taxes and customs and such, uh, they, would, they would farm that out to locals who were willing to, um, to take that tax money, and uh, they, would, they were really willing to bid high prices in order to get kind of a, a tax franchise, so to speak. And so these tax collectors would collect taxes, but then they would collect more taxes so that they could pay the tax farmer who gave them their franchise, and then they would collect taxes beyond that so that they could line their own pockets. It was a, it was a whole enterprise. And often they used violent means. They extorted taxes from their own people. And for this reason, they were hated and disdained among the Jews. They were traitors, after all. They were people who who worked for Rome, who worked for foreign oppressors, who thought so little of being a Jew that they were willing to sell out to make a buck. And of course, they were also corrupt, generating wealth by extortion. Violently at times, they would break people's legs and arms if they couldn't pay. Then, of course, because of their dealings, regular dealings with Gentiles, they were unclean as well. And so... You had these traitorous, corrupt, unclean people who epitomized those who were willing to sell out for money. They were a disgrace to their family. They were expelled from the synagogues. They were disqualified from ever serving as a witness in a court of justice. Everything they touched became unclean, which is why it would be scandalous to ever invite a tax collector into their, to your house, let alone to go to a tax collector's house. And if you remember in Luke chapter 5, verse 29, that's exactly what Jesus did. He went to Levi's house, the tax collector, and it was scandalous to the Pharisees who were watching. Jews were forbidden to receive money from the tax collectors, even if it was alms, because it was considered robbery money. The Mishnah even encouraged Jews to lie to tax collectors with impunity. 
And this was the individual that Jesus chose to represent the others. The ones that were held in contempt. He was everything scandalous, everything shameful, everything wicked wrapped into one person. That's who this is about. And as we look further in, there's all that background that is going on in the minds of Jesus' hearers who are already making assumptions about these people, already making assumptions about their spirituality, their piety, and their relationship with God. And they're already picking sides. And so as we look further in this text and we... We come to verse 11, we get to see a little profile of these men and the prayers that they prayed. I titled this sermon, A Tale of Two Prayers, but really the prayer is just a vehicle to look at the heart, and that's exactly what Jesus is uncovering as we look at these two men. So let's look at this Pharisee to start with. Verse 11, we see first off his posture. It says the Pharisee was standing by himself. Now, standing by himself certainly um, separated from others. Like we said, Pharisees did not want to be uh, made unclean by the common person, and so they would stand apart from other people. And this is uh, assuming what he is doing here at the temple. He is standing by himself so as not to be defiled by those around him. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's secluded and unseen, though. Most likely, he is in a very visible position, able to be seen by others around him. It's implied by the fact that he mentions this tax collector. He can see him. But remember, Jesus had already commented Earlier, in Matthew 6, verse 5, he talks about the hypocrites. And remember, by the time he gets to Matthew 23, he's going to apply that very term to the Pharisees. And hypocrites, he said, were those who loved to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So we can assume that this Pharisee was not isolated by himself in a locked closet. He was standing by himself but praying so that others could see him. But there's really some ambiguity here because if you have a a different translation, a New American Standard or a King James or New King James, you'll notice that your text will read not standing by himself, but standing, he prayed to himself. There's actual ambiguity in the Greek here. If you were a listener hearing Jesus say this, it would not be clear what he meant. Wait, is he standing by himself or is he praying to himself? Which one is it? And I think that's intentional. Jesus wants to provoke them to think, what's going on here? Because when he gets to his actual prayer, it's very clear what he's doing. We look at his prayer. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. It starts out like you would hear a typical Thanksgiving prayer, like the one that we saw in Psalm 9, thanking the Lord and blessing the Lord for his goodness and his acts that he has done. 
But this is no thanksgiving prayer because there is no list of things that God has done. In fact, four times he uses four different verbs, all of them. The Pharisee is the actor in this. It's I have done this. It's, it's I, it's I, it's I. This prayer is about him, not God. His prayer is based on the fact he's not like other men. There's that word again, other. And who are these others? Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, the sinners of society. And it caps off with the very mention of this most notorious of sinners, this tax collector. Enough to send shivers up the spines of Jesus' listeners. This Pharisee is completely confident in his righteousness because he bases his self-righteousness and his self-assessment in relation to these others. He looks at them and he looks at himself and he says, I'm okay. His self-assurance is that he's not like the others. And then we get into his praise Usually a Thanksgiving psalm would include praising the Lord for the various things that God's done. But there's none of that here. Instead, this is what he's done. And he really zeroes in on, on, on two specific actions that really typified Pharisaic Judaism. He says, I fast twice a week. I go above and beyond. Old Testament required only one fast at the Day of Atonement. Fasting, of course, could take place at other times. Fasting could happen at the national calamity or in the midst of a war or when somebody was preparing for some spiritual act of service. But um, the Pharisees had mastered the art of piety and had incorporated bi-weekly fasting into their normal religious regimen. And so uh, typically Pharisees would come to the temple, they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. The fast would begin at dawn and it would end at dusk and they would drink only water and eat only bread. Jesus notes in Matthew 6 that these hypocrites would distort their face and make it very apparent to the people around them that they were very spiritual and they were going through agony for the sake of spiritual sacrifice. They were making a good show of it aimed to engender adoration at these onlookers who saw them doing these pious deeds and thought, wow, what devotion to God. That's not all he does. Not only does he fast twice a week, he pay tithes of everything that he gets. Everything. Tithing was a part of the Mosaic Covenant It was a part of the law. It was a means that God ordained to um, fund the theocratic kingdom of Israel. Deuteronomy 14 called for the tithing of the first of the flock and uh, the grain, the wine, the oil. But uh, the Pharisees went above and beyond that. The rabbinic traditions that the Pharisees championed expanded this list to include vegetables and legumes and herbs and spices. Jesus in Matthew 23, 23 talks about how they tithed mint and dill and cumin. They were taking their condiments and tithing it to the Lord. Some of the Pharisees even went beyond that. 
gave a tenth of even all of the income that they generated from their commerce and their trade. All this is not sinful in and of itself. It's not the point. The point is not that generosity is outlawed. The point is this is all external to him. This is externality in religious piety. His listeners would have applauded this Pharisee, his virtue. They would have attributed to him the the same superior status that he ascribed to himself. That's exactly what Jesus wanted them to do because he is, after all, focused not so much on prayer as much as he's focused on the heart. And this man's prayer uncovers a heart that is anything but spiritual. The Pharisees represent everything, a religious system that is fixated on the exterior, on behavior. He goes above and beyond the commands. He creates a law for himself, and then he imposes that law on other people. And then he congratulates himself that he is better and more righteous than the others who fail to achieve his incredible piety based on his own standard. It's all external. It's all a show. This is, there's no heart in this. And that's very typical for Judaism. You look at Judaism today, there's a new series that's uh, being produced by Daily Wire, uh, kind of featuring Jordan Peterson. But Dennis Prager, who's a well-known Orthodox Jew and kind of the champion of the traditional Jewish perspective on Exodus, um, he had this to say. He said, I have little interest in what goes on in the heart. He says Judaism is, uh, is an external religion. It's a, com- it's, a, it's a religion of commands. And God does not really command things that have to do with the heart. That's the Christian add-on. And yet even a cursory glance at Deuteronomy just completely belies that. Do you know that the heart, the word heart appears 41 times alone in the book of Deuteronomy? You are to love Yahweh, your God, with all of your heart. Isaiah 29:13 said because this people draws near with their mouth and honor me with their lips but they have removed their hearts from me and Jesus quotes that passage in Matthew 15 and applies it to the Pharisees. This man has full confidence in his own righteousness because he is comparing his actions to others. And yet, just earlier in this same gospel, in the gospel of Luke, we're going to go a little bit long, okay? You need to hear this. Earlier in the gospel of Luke, Jesus actually exposed the Pharisees for being guilty of the very sins that this man says he's never done. He says he's not an extortioner. In Luke eleven thirty nine, Jesus said, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of robbery. And wickedness. He says he's not unjust, yet Luke eleven forty two, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice. You're just as unjust as they are. He says he's not an adulterer, yet in Luke sixteen, eighteen, and when you couple that with Matthew nineteen, Jesus completely exposes them because they had been divorcing their wives on their own. Uh, initiative without any cause. And Jesus says anybody who uh, divorces his wife except for unfaithfulness is guilty of adultery. 
They are extortioners and unjust and adulterers just like the others that they condemn and have contempt for. Their righteousness is a show. It's put on by men to exalt themselves. And so rightly, Jesus says in Luke 16, 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. That's what's being exposed here in this man's prayer. And this is all just completely opposite of what we see with the tax collector. We're introduced to this tax collector in verse 13. I won't belabor this, but he's standing far off. That's his position, probably in the court of the Gentiles. It's scandalous for him to even be in the temple. The Mishnah and the Talmud required that all sinners and tax collectors be barred from accessing the temple. So his very presence here would be shocking to Jesus' listeners. But he's standing far off, but not in the same way, not because he doesn't want to be defiled. Instead, he's standing far off, I think out of shame. His posture certainly is, because it says he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, literally not willing to lift up his eyes. It's a picture of guilt. It's a picture of shame. He's carrying the weight of his iniquity. Heaven's the place where God resides And so this really reveals where he is making his comparison from. The Pharisee is looking at other people and saying, I'm not like them. This Pharisee can't look up because he knows God's there and he's comparing himself to God and saying, I don't measure up. I can't even lift my eyes and look God in the face. His penitence is evident He's beating his breast. It's a picture of agony, a picture of desperation. Josephus talks about this as this expression of mourning and penitence, one who's broken over one's sin. He's beating the very place where his sin comes from, his heart. And that's Jesus' point. This is a parable of two men who go into the temple and present two very different prayers and are exposed of two different heart conditions. The tax collector is the picture of true repentance. True repentance, brokenness over sin, shame before God. Someone who recognizes his moral and spiritual bankruptcy. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and this is all about who's fit for the kingdom. And then we get to his actual prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee's prayer was to himself, and about himself. This man's prayer is thoroughly God-centered. It's short, it's direct. Be merciful. It's a special term. It's not the usual term for mercy. It's a special term that's used in the Old Testament about the sacrificial system. Is be propitious. Satisfy your wrath on someone else other than me. Place your wrath on a substitute. That's what he's saying. 
Be merciful to me. And he identifies himself not by others, but literally he calls himself the sinner, the epitome of sinners, the sinner of all sinners. He is the representative of all who have come to the end of themselves, who have nothing to offer God in a way of righteousness, who are forced to plead with God for mercy. He's the worst of sinners, and he reminds us that there is nobody that is outside the mercy of God. And so he knows that all he can do is he can throw himself upon God's mercy and hope that the Lord will pour his wrath on something else other than him. This is a picture of Old Testament salvation. A pre-cross sinner who entrusts himself to the grace and the mercy of God, who recognizes in the sacrificial system that a God is a God who desires to forgive, but who, whose justice for sin must be satisfied. And that's why the shock of all shock comes in verse 14, when Jesus says, I tell you this, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Justified. Made right with God. With everything that, that entails, from forgiveness and peace and assurance and hope, this would have been shocking Because it's a complete reversal. Jesus has pulled off the reversal of all reversals. He began his story with a Pharisee who saw himself as not like the others. But by the end of the story, Jesus has taken a tax collector, the epitome of the others, and has set him apart in the class all by himself, not like the Pharisee whom Jesus just dismissed as the other. In essence, Jesus has baited every legalist, every self-righteous person, everyone who is tempted to find um, satisfaction in their own work. He just baited them to identify themselves with the most outwardly pious person in Judaism only to be exposed as the one who was no different than the rest of the people that they so despise. The principle is clear. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There is judgment to come for those who exalt self, but there is mercy and glory to come for those who humble themselves before God. And Christ is in the middle, laying himself down as our substitute representing every poor, miserable sinner who is willing to admit his own wickedness and throw himself upon the mercy of God. 1 John 2, 2 says he is our propitiation for our sin. Same word. He's the one who became a curse for us. He's the one who became sin on our behalf so that we might have the righteousness of Christ in him. So if, if you are here today and you have not thrown yourself upon God's mercy, I would just beg of you, to consider your standard of righteousness. Consider how high that standard is and throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Pray the prayer that this man prayed, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and he promises he will be. He promises to cover you with grace and cover you with the blood of Jesus Christ so when God looks at you in his holy wrath, he sees nothing but Christ's righteousness rather than your sin. 
because your righteousness has been given to Christ and dealt with at the cross. And if you know the Lord here, please don't think that you're impervious to this sin of pride, self-righteousness. It's, it's the reason why we have a hard time choosing fellowship and peace over our personal preferences in the church. Breaking fellowship with people because I want this and you want that. It's pride that's the reason why you might think you're a better mom than your friend or your neighbor because of how your kids are doing rather than theirs. It's pride that maybe is the reason why you have that critical attitude towards other people. Why there's this silent disdain, this silent judgment in your mind against everyone who can't seem to do things right like you can. It's pride that's the reason why you're maybe unwilling to reconcile and forgive that person in the church. It's pride that's the reason why you feel superior to people who are in a different political party than you are. It's pride that keeps you from serving in the church, serving in ministry. This is all the tendrils of pride. I want to close in this and then we're going to do a some time with uh, some families here. I just want to close with this. This is the words of, of one other man who would have very easily recognized himself in this Pharisee and rooted for him in the first part of his life, but then came to recognize that he was no better than the others. This is the words of the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The same word. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Sounds just like the litany of activities and achievements of the Pharisee. And then listen to this, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The testimony of one who thought he was the sum, but was no better than the other. And God opened his eyes and realized he needed mercy just like everyone. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for our time. Thank you for this powerful text and what it means for us sinners who are in desperate need of your grace and your mercy. I pray that every one of us would take a spiritual assessment of our hearts and see whether or not we need to throw ourselves at your mercy and root out pride and self-righteousness in our lives. I pray that you would help us to do that and be humble, Lord, as we walk day to day in your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.